Amen. Let's pray. Father, each one of us, I pray if it wasn't the case in walking in here today, maybe because of distractions or discouragements or whatever is going on in life, that it may be true for us now that our desire is to see Christ. And that we would, in seeing Him, we would really and truly be able to sing these songs from from hearts that are resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We would be able to sing, oh, it's, it's well. It's not well because everything in life is the way that I want it to be or, or pray that it would be or would, would have it be if it were up to me. But it's well because the one who rules over all things has it where he wants it has me where he wants me, and I am in him. I have Christ, and Christ has me. And because of faith, we are inseparable from one another. And the cry for each one of us today that is in Christ, that knows you, would be a greater clarity of our Lord, his work to love him more, to see him more clearly, to desire him and grow in our affection for him, and in doing so, affections for other things, they, they fall away, they lessen. Lord, help us today as we see Christ as the end of the law for those who believe. We have arrived in a sense because we have um, arrived at Christ and see Him and who He is for us and who we are in Him. So help us today, Lord. Draw our eyes to You, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, we're going to you know, close out our section today in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. And, um, you know, we've been doing this, this little, you know, mini-series, I guess, in the book of Romans over these past three weeks regarding grace, the legalist, and legalism. And one of my prayers and my hopes is that we've been able to take this home, make it personal for us in whatever way. You know, that's, that's my prayer. Um, this is a... You know, this is a constant display of trust and faith that as we're preaching and we go through the Scripture, the Spirit of God is taking the truth of God and He is bringing it to bear upon your life, specifically and in particular, even if it's in a way that I didn't mention, I didn't talk about, you're listening to what the Lord is speaking to you regarding the message and the, the passage that we're going through. If you've been tracking with us, we've been talking about grace, the legalist, and legalism. And while grace, the word grace is not mentioned anywhere in the passage, um, I've been making a point of it because what he's contrasting is righteousness by faith versus righteousness by works. And 
None of that happens. Righteousness by faith does not happen unless God's gracious in his nature and disposition to send his son to work out and accomplish righteousness, to die in that righteousness, to resurrect in that righteousness, and then to give that righteousness to us, not by anything that we do, but simply by faith and by faith alone. That magnifies the grace of God. It puts to death the, the, the desire that we have to work for this righteousness, this favor with God, which is to highlight this works-based, legalistic nature that exists within fallen man. I have to earn it. I have to, I have to work for it. The only way that God will be pleased with me and I will have fellowship with him is if I'm good enough, I do enough, I try enough, and that, that's just ingrained into us. And, when, and the good news of the gospel is, is what? That, that you can't work enough, do enough, try enough, be, be a certain type of person enough. But that righteousness, fellowship with God, comes by faith and by faith alone, which is, which is by his grace. So we've been talking about you know, I've said before, Romans chapter 4 through 11 is largely half the book, eight chapters, dedicated to the idea of salvation. And a lot of it has been, what does the believer have? The, this person who is saved, which we'll talk about today in 10.1, what do they have? And we've talked about how you're in Christ, by faith alone, you're completely justified and declared not guilty. You have peace with God. You're no longer at war. You're not fighting with him. And best of all, he's not fighting with you. That you are dead to sin. That it can, that it will no longer ever have dominion over you. And that you're free from the demands of the law. Because they've all been met. Every single law demand has been met for you in Christ. All of them. And now you have the Spirit of God living within you. He has adopted you. He testifies to you. He prays for you according to the will of God when you don't know what to pray for. He seals you, guarantees you, so much to the point where we would say there's nothing all of this culminates in what? This crescendo. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so he's been working all of this into the mind of those who are in Christ. And then in 9 and 10 and 11, he gets into the, the beginning to tease out some of the differences and similarities between the rub between Jew and Gentile. And he's wanting people, God's wanting us to see that all of these things that he's talking about in 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, they're given. Whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, if you're in Christ, it's all yours. And in a large part, he's trying to get the Jew to rethink how they view God, how they know God, and how they view the law and how was one made right with God? And what's the role of the law in that? And what's the role of God's grace in all of that? And that's what we've been focusing on for the past few weeks in this section between 
um, chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 10, verse 4, where really there's only one verse that's committed, it's verse 30 in chapter 9, to the Gentile, and it's this proclamation statement that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained it. Righteousness, that is by faith. But then through verse 31, through chapter 10, verse 4, the focus has been largely upon the Jew and exposing to them in the ways that they've fallen short. Where did they go wrong? Why did they go wrong? To get them to think through. And then, and, and then this, this idea is going to carry through. Craig will be preaching. I'll be gone next Sunday. I'll be at my grandmother's funeral in Arizona. So Craig will be preaching, and he'll, I think he's going to continue on in this and, and talk about um, the salvation of the gospel. That's for all who can hear and who profess Christ as Lord. But as we get into our text again today, we're going to focus on chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 4. We want to continue to think about what the Scripture says regarding um, what Israel did, how they fell short, and Paul's heart, his desire for them, what he wants for them. He doesn't hate. One might think, oh man, Paul, you're really coming down hard on your fellow countrymen, the Jews. You you must kind of have something against them. And he doesn't have anything against them. He doesn't hate them. He wants to see Christ magnified. He wants to get them to jettison the, the law and, and as a means for righteousness and see Christ and embrace Christ. It's actually, he has a great love for them in that way. So we're going to read Romans 9, verse, begin, begin in verse 30. We're going to read through chapter 10, verse 4, but focus our time this morning on on chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 together. So let's read. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We see um, Paul's prayer here for them, his desire for them. And all of it is really focusing on the person and the work of Christ. I mean, if you, if you want to see really like what's, what's the main point, what's the central theme, what's the thesis statement of, of this text? Well, it's the thesis statement of, of the whole Bible. It's Christ. Him magnified, his work. That's what, that's what Paul is constantly drawing people's, attentions to, people's attention to is the person and the work of Christ. And in this particular section, he's talking about that righteousness that God demands 
that we have to have in order to have fellowship with him being attained in one of two ways, faith or works. And it's by God's gracious nature and disposition that he gives it to us as a gift of faith. The whole thing, the whole point, it revolves around how is one righteous enough to have fellowship with God? That's the point. You have to have a righteousness. I mean, righteousness is mentioned over and over and over again. You have to have a righteousness, an inner, an outer, a moral perfection, which is equal with God's own moral, righteous perfection and holiness. That's what is needed. And what the main point Paul is saying is that comes by faith in Christ and faith alone. And if you have faith in Christ, then you actually have his righteousness. He gives his righteousness to you. Or you're going to try and earn it on your own by works of the law, which is what Christ did on our behalf, but by which none of us can do. None of us can work the law to do it and to live it perfectly. So therefore, righteousness in that way remains out of our reach forever. And yet, righteousness is what we need in order to have fellowship with God. No righteousness, no salvation. No righteousness, no forgiveness. No righteousness, no eternal life. No hope, no nothing. You have to have a perfect righteousness. And so he's magnifying the work of Christ and his righteousness and how we receive it by faith. Christ is the grounds of our righteousness. Faith is the instrument of our righteousness. And grace is God's disposition to give us righteousness and to make the way possible for us. And that's uh, Paul's desire. He wants them to know that this is indeed the case, which is where we see him starting off in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, speaking to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You can think of how, I mean, he's talking about righteousness, but what's the, what's the practical gift and benefit that the human has with God when we receive Christ's righteousness. Salvation. I mean, that's his heart's desire. How, how, am I, how would I, what do I really want from them? I want them to have Christ's righteousness. Why? Because in having Christ's righteousness, they'll be saved. I want them to be saved. Right? We use this language. For anybody in this room that's a believer and has loved ones, Co-workers, neighbors that don't know Christ, and you were to ask, what, what, would you, what do you desire most? What's our typical response? I want them to be saved. What are you saying when you're saying you want someone to be saved? Do you, I mean, do we know what's packed into that, that little phrase, I want them to be saved? You're saying, I want them to be justified. I want them to be adopted. I want them to be sealed by the Spirit. I want them to have Christ's righteousness. I mean, all of that stuff is packaged in this one word or phrase, to be saved. That's what I want. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for my dad. 
That's what I want for, for people who don't know Christ. I want them to be saved. And you see Paul, how badly does he want it? My heart's desire. My heart is beating like, <laughs> I want them to be saved. My prayer to God for them is their salvation. I mean, when you're praying for someone's salvation, in some way, shape, or form, whether you recognize it or not, it, it is an expression of faith because you know that it, it, it requires divine intervention. And you're asking the only one who can divinely intervene to do it. My heart's desire is salvation, and I'm praying, I'm asking the one who can actually do it to do it in their life. This is what I want for them. It's for their salvation. It's an issue of for them to receive the grace of God, for them to know Christ, to have his righteousness. I'm asking you, God, show them your grace. Be gracious to them. Save them. Give them Christ's righteousness. And he says, for I bear them witness, in verse 2, that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal. They have, a, they have an enthusiasm, the Jews. They have an enthusiasm for God. They have a fervency for God. But it's not according to knowledge. They don't, it's not that they don't know anything about God. It's that they don't see him fully and clearly because they don't see, they don't know God as he presents himself in Christ. They know God in, a, in an Old Testament, legalistic, national pride type of way. Have you ever been, I was thinking about this this week, been zealous, enthusiastic for something, but you really didn't know much about it. And it's kind of like when you're, it's kind of like when you're a kid and you're enthusiastic and zealous for growing up. Because once I'm a grown up, then I can do whatever I want. As long as I'm a kid, I got my parents telling me I got to be where I got to be, how I got to be, how I got to dress. When I grow up, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. You're so zealous and you're enthusiastic, you have zero knowledge of what it's like to actually be an adult. And then everyone who gets an adult says what? Oh my goodness, I wish I could be a kid again. Give me my, you know, give me some of those rules back if I could just not have to worry about and stress out about adulting. Right? They have an enthusiasm, they have a fervency about God. But it, and and, it, and it, there is some knowledge, but it's not full knowledge. They don't know him as he reveals himself in Christ. This is, which is what he says, and he goes on. Um, for I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to being a God of grace. Not according to being a God of deliverance and forgiveness and compassion, which they should have known him in that way. You think of the fact how many times we function in the same way, and this is really what it is that we want from believers, right? We want zealous, passionate, fervent, enthusiastic Christians, but we want them to be 
fervent and enthusiastic according to the knowledge of God and who he is and how he presents himself completely in his word. The more we know about him, the more we, we should love him, desire him, worship him. They missed that to a large degree. I mean, but you think about the way that, you know, if, if Israel knows him largely by, by legalistic and Old Testament terms, which is the point Paul is making, they're pursuing righteousness through the law based on works. And so, and of course, the cornerstone of the, the Mosaic law, Old Testament law, was the Ten Commandments. And their pursuit of that was how they were gonna, thought they would get favor and obtain righteousness. But they saw God. They didn't see him completely as they should have seen him. It's like they, they completely ignored the, the, what we would call the preamble to the Ten Commandments. What does God say to his people? Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the giving of the Ten Commandments. What does God say? before he gives them any of those commands. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he even gets into any of the commandments, he front loads it with, I am the God who heard your cries while you were in slavery, and could do nothing about it on your own. I am the God who divinely intervened and rescued you from slavery. You had no hope of life, no hope of freedom, no hope of salvation, but I intervened and I came. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I took you out of slavery. They should have known, they should have seen God's gracious nature and disposition from the beginning, for even their own law was, was filled with that and front-loaded with the reminder of them looking to him as the source of their deliverance and their salvation. But they missed it. And so he'll go on and tell us exactly, more specifically, what it is that they missed. He says in 10 too, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Well, what is it that they didn't know in, in particular? I've said that they, didn't, they missed God as he presents himself to them as the Savior, as the Deliverer. But he adds to this in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What don't they know? They don't know about the righteousness of God. And again, not that they don't know that God is righteous. They know God has a righteousness. They're ignorant of how does one obtain the righteousness of God. That's, the, again, the whole point. The context that Paul is talking about is how does one obtain the righteousness of God? Gentiles got it by faith. Jews are pursuing it by works of the law. The, the, the obtaining of the righteousness is the whole context. So what did they not know? What were they ignorant of? Not that God is righteous. They knew that. The problem was, is how does one obtain the righteousness of God? That is what they missed. 
They miss the fact that righteous, God's righteousness is only obtainable by His grace, by a gift, by faith. We saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. They missed the gospel. They missed God's righteousness as it, as it is seen in the gospel, as it is understood by his gracious nature and disposition, as it is seen in, most clearly seen in Christ. They didn't see God's righteousness as being a gift by God's grace through faith, but as something that must be earned and worked for. They only know God in terms of law. So, of course, they preach the law. And they bind people's consciences by the law. They don't know God in terms of grace, so they can't preach the gospel of grace. They can't preach Jesus Christ clothed in the gospel, which is what, they, which what leads them to doing what we see them do next, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. This is this great exchange that they do. The righteousness of God is out of reach. So what do they do? They create their own form of righteousness, which, oh, surprise, surprise, it is attainable on their own. And this is, this is the basis of every false religion that's out there. There is a righteousness that is attainable on your own merit or goodness or work. But, and this is also the reason why there are so many false religions out there. Because, because where's the line? I'm going to make an exchange. I'm going to exchange the righteousness of God, right? The bar is perfection. It's stand, that, that's the standard is, 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 is holiness and perfection. I can't attain that. Rather than crying out to him and praying and to um, appealing to his grace to help me and to provide it for me, what do I do? Well, I just lower the bar. But where I lower the bar may not be the same place where you lower the bar or another person lowers the bar. But the point is, is that, we're, that what's natural to the human being is to lower the bar of righteousness so that it's attainable on your own. And so we make this great exchange. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God and, they, and seeking to establish their own. And what do they do in, in establishing their own and, and being ignorant of God? They do not submit to God's righteousness. At the end of the day, to establish any other bar of righteousness is to establish your own bar of authority and merit and work, and it's, it's an uns, unsubmissiveness to God's righteousness. It's to, it's to try and take yourself out of, from under his bar of righteousness and perfection. Set your own and work after that. And the, the natural outcome is that this is now the bar, not only for you, but upon which you hold other people. And so you're holding other people accountable 
for a bar of righteousness that's not God's, that you have created, that is good and wise in your own sight, and then what do you do with the people who don't attain to that bar, your, your personal bar of righteousness? Judgment. This is where the inner legalist comes in. And, it, and, it's, and it's devastating. And, in, and, and entire churches are ran and built this way. There are people in this room today that have come out of those churches and they're like, dude, Totally, I know exactly what you're saying. They miss altogether the good news of verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can't preach the righteousness of God and the, and, and the gracious work of in keeping of that righteousness by our Lord Jesus Christ, you can't preach the gospel if you've changed the bar of righteousness to be attainable by you or by any other person. You have to maintain the perfect bar of righteousness that God establishes because then people, because then you can preach the gospel because then you can point people to Christ and the one who actually did meet that bar and that standard of righteousness and the one who has attained it. And, that's, and then you can say he has something to give you. This is what Christ did. To lower the bar of righteousness is to diminish the work of, to diminish the righteousness of God, but also to diminish the work of Christ. It's to make less of him. But if we keep God's perfection of righteousness here, then we can magnify Christ because that's what he's done. And then we can, in the gospel, say, this is what is yours. All that it is that Christ did, you can have all of that, not by any effort or work, but by coming to him by faith and by faith alone. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not a lowering or a changing of the righteousness of God. It's the fulfilling of that righteousness of God. What did Jesus say with our scripture reading from last week or the week before? I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Those are, those are words of love. That, those are words of the gospel. I have come to work. Why? Because Christ needs righteousness? No, because we need righteousness. I'm coming to do something for you, which is exactly what he does, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The, the, the exchange the wonderful gift of the exchange that takes place in the scripture is the exchange of my sin upon Christ and his righteousness for me. Christ is the end of the law. The, the purpose, the goal of the law. If he maintains that place, then faith and grace are magnified and works are nullified, which is exactly the way that it should be. 
He's the purpose. He's the goal. He's the fulfillment. For what? For righteousness. To who? For everyone who believes. How do I... How does one receive? Again, like... He he continues to write about this issue, addressing it from several different ways to try and get us to see the point. Christ is the goal. He's the purpose. That's why he came, to fulfill the law for righteousness to everyone who believes by faith. See, you're not, again, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You could be a weak, struggling Christian, but if you are in Christ, all of Christ and his full righteousness is still fully yours on your behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. Once you're in, you're in. You can never get out. And your goodness Obedience, disobedience doesn't change your status and position of righteousness one bit. Now, it doesn't mean that God won't move towards you and discipline you out of his love for you. He surely does that. But why, again, why does he do that? What did he do when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they ran? He pursued. I mentioned it again last week in Psalm 32. David had sinned. God's hand was heavy upon him. He moves towards his children out of love who are walking astray and tend to drift. He moves toward them out of his love for them because they're in his son, in Christ. I can't let you go. I've got to bring you back in. The good news of the gospel is that we have Christ for our salvation fixed and secure And we have Christ for our sanctification, constantly pursuing, conforming us to be like him. It's for all of those who believe. Begin to think about, um, you know, what type of community, what type of group of people should should a message like this create? People that have been declared righteous, right? Declared righteous, adopted by the Spirit, have peace with God. All of these blessings that we're talking about that's for the salvation. What type of, what type of group of people should this create? What type of church, Right? Should this create? We're talking about people who are in Christ. What type of what type of church should this truth create? And he's going to, we'll see once we get into chapter 12, more specifically, what this type of community, this group, should look like. But first of all, if you just think about it in terms of what we've been talking about. The the type of group that people have been shown grace without having to earn it, I think should be a type of people that are eager to show grace to others, whether or not they have earned it in your sight. Shouldn't it? 
I think the scriptures in Colossians 3 say, as you have been forgiven, you must forgive others. I think that that goes true for every other Christian virtue as well. I think you could insert, as you have been shown kindness, show that to others. To the degree of which you've been shown grace, to the degree of which you've been shown mercy, patience, show it to other people. I think it should create a a group of people where Christ is the end. Where he's the purpose of everything that God demands from me and from you. Do we come together and do we see one another as we are people where we gather together and Christ is the end for us, for righteousness? God himself has fulfilled what it is that not only he demands of me, but he demands from all of you. Do I have in my mind that God and his, there's nothing that can separate you, not just me. I love that verse for me. And I, and I, I bet you do too. I bet you hold on to that verse. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. What about the brother or sister in Christ that you're really not getting along with very well at the time who's sitting on the other side of the room? Do you think about that verse for them? And do you rejoice for them? Nothing can separate them from the love of Christ as well because Christ is the end. God gladly and joyfully gave them his righteousness too, not just me. Everyone else who is in Christ has his righteousness as well. What kind of group, what kind of community, what type of people is the gospel really supposed to be creating and shaping? People who hold grudges against one another and judge one another? Or people that have, been, have received something so incredibly immense from God that they're happy that not only do their brothers and sisters in Christ have it, but they, they want to show it to them. I'm eager, right? We'll see in Romans 12. Outdo one another in showing honor. Are, you, are we trying to do that? That's just, and that's just one example. John Piper he has, this, he has a book on marriage, which I think is, it's phenomenal. And he says that this is one of the reasons why, why I think it's so great, because he hits on this point in particular. Now, this is spoken in the context of marriage, but you can think about it in, in terms of any relationship, parents, friends, anything. As the Lord count, he says this, as the Lord counts you righteous in Christ, though you are not righteous in actual behavior and attitude, so count your spouse righteous in Christ, though he or she is not righteous in character and attitude. How often are you tempted to not just treat your spouse but other people according to their character and their attitude rather than who they are in Christ and how God would have you move towards them in Christ as a brother or sister in Christ? He'll go on and he says, and he'll say this, this is the beginning of how husbands and wives forbear and forgive. 
They are blown away by being chosen, set apart, and loved by God. And again, you could insert any relationship into that. Are you so blown away that you have been chosen, set apart, and declared holy, given a righteousness by Christ, that that's how you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you're happy for them that God is that way towards them. Or, or, or are we, do we create a group where we withhold? I'm withholding love, I'm withholding mercy, I'm withholding compassion until that person gets it right. That's a legalistic framework and structure. Now again, I'm not saying that, that we let sin go run rampant. Well, I'm not saying that it's, sin isn't to be addressed and dealt with. Obviously, in Scripture, we see that that is the case. But I think the person that it really understands the grace of God that's been given to them and what it is that they have in Christ, something changes about the way that they view sin and the importance of approaching it. The legalist is one who is critical, nitpicky. Everything is black and white. They're narrow-minded, they're unreasonable, they're impatient, and they can be combative, all under the banner of, I love the truth right? That type of person, the legalist, can be disarmed. They can listen. They can be moved toward by a person who understands the gospel of grace and the righteousness of Christ that's been given to them free of charge when the person who understands the grace and the gospel for them and Christ for them and for the other person when they, and, and how they move toward them. So this is what you're going to find. As God creates this community and this group for us to live together, bear with one another, love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. But the person who understands and is overwhelmed that they have a righteousness from Christ that they did not work for is going to, first of all, be the person that thinks very carefully about what needs to be addressed, if anything at all. The legalist, everything needs to be addressed. Everything's black and white, everything is nitpicky, everything is a mountain to die on. The person who understands the grace of God gives careful thought and consideration, and you know what they find out at the end of the day? I probably really don't even need to address that because you know why? It's just really a personal preference. They're not doing anything wrong in the eyes of the Lord. I just don't like what they're doing. It annoys me. You don't need to confront people with that stuff. You got to go to God and deal with it yourself. You know what that reveals? They don't have an issue. You got an issue. Personal preferences go by the wayside. You know what you start to do when you, when you think of things in terms of this is, this is objectively wrong in the eyes of the Lord versus this is just a personal preference? Oh my goodness, the number of things that you feel like you need to address with someone, they, they start to fall away because you find out most of the things that you feel like you need to address with another person, you need to approach them about, they're really just personal preferences and they're not doing anything objectively wrong or sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Secondly, if they are doing something wrong, it is objectively sinful in the eyes of the Lord. 
the person who understands the grace of God, the way they approach them is radically different. I've heard it said that the Christian army is the first to shoot its own wounded. That's sad. How do you move towards people who are objectively doing something wrong and sinful in the eyes of the Lord? Coming gun blazing, boom, 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 boom. Bless you, brother. Just pointed out all your sin. Let me know when you got it under control. Give me a call. Or do you move toward people because you know what it's like to be forgiven a debt you could not pay? And you move towards people with with understanding. This is, again, what type of community does the gospel create? It creates a community where people tell the difference between what's sinful and what's preferential. And it it creates a community that creates a group of people that move toward one another differently with understanding, with peace, with, with compassion and love and mercy. And it creates a people that have a clear goal in mind in addressing what needs to be addressed. God's glory in conformity to Christ. See, what we have a tendency to do, if what I'm needing to address with another person is based on personal preference, then whose image am I trying to conform them into? Mine. And, and, and what would I like? I would like nothing more than a church full of many me's. That's the person that has lost sight of, of who's to be glorified, God, and, and, and who they're supposed to become like, Christ. And what if God chooses and making them to be like Christ is not the way that I would do it, and it's not that he did, God doesn't, God, really what you should be working on first in their life is their patience, and God chooses to do something else. God will conform, if you keep the goal in mind, the glory of God and the conformity into the image of Christ, then then you're off on the right path. This This is what I pray often for this church. God, if this is not a place where you are going to be glorified and this is not a place where people are going to be made to be more like Christ, then send us all somewhere else. Because those two things are more valuable than anything else. And if that's not happening here, then we need to go to places where it is happening because those things are more important. We want this to be a place, me, Dan, and Craig, we want this to be a place where God is glorified in all that we do. A place where people are conformed not to be like Dan. Dan's a great guy. Craig's a great guy. Many of you are great people. I don't want anybody in this room to be like you. I want all of us to be like Christ. The glory of God, the conformity to the image of Christ is the goal. How we move towards one another as people who have received and understand the grace of God given to us in the gospel, unmerited, unworked for, freely given, fully given, eternally given, saturated with that truth, 
informs how we move towards one another, and that actually informs in what it is that we address as we speak with one another. You know how we should be addressing one another? Scripture tells us. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We should be singing the glories and the work of Christ that we share together, even if we're not always on the same page with one another. We don't, we move towards one another. This is the time in our service where we're going to partake of communion, and we're, in our minds are specifically focused on the one who has moved towards us, is it not? And what did he do when he moved towards us? Offered up his body, shed his blood on our behalf. That's how, that's how we should be willing to move towards one another, offering ourselves up, shedding our own blood, right? Putting ourselves completely aside for one another because we see that this is what Christ has done for us. And this is not, this is not a time for us to, this is a time for us to worship and celebrate the movement of God to us in Christ and what it is that he has done and promised us and given us that we rest in and that we rejoice in. So this is the time of worship. But it's the time of worship together, together. So the elements are on the back table. If you are here today and you don't know Christ by faith, let the elements, don't partake. Just let them go. But think about the gospel and what Christ offers you by faith and by faith alone. Forgiveness, salvation, righteousness. But if you're here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, please celebrate with us. So the elements are on the back tables. You can get those. Return back to your seat for a time of prayer, and we will partake of communion together shortly.